Just in case. Yeah, right. I always want to be ready to protect the earth. There you go. Yes. Well, welcome. You guys all have been welcome, but greetings. Um, yeah, it's good to be with you guys again. It's, it's been a minute. Yeah, salut. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23, if you want to find yourselves there. Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23. And uh, it continues, well, we'll get into that. But first, Geometry. No. no. We have to do it. We have to do it. I know. We have I know. We're going to do it again. No. So if it's, I was curious how many people still study geometry. I didn't know. It's been a long time since I was in school. So, uh, But some still do. Okay, great. So it's a study of math, right? What is geometry study? Geos. No, it studies shapes and dimensions and space. Yeah. It's not the study of geos or geoms. It is it's actually the study of sizes, shapes, positions, two dimensions, three dimensions. How do things fit? How do things work together? Right? That, that is geometry. Okay, there are certain things in geometry that are kind of hard to do, but once you have them, you have a solid place in life. And they're called proofs. You remember proofs in geometry? They are laws. They are things that you can grasp onto and will never move. I'll give you an example. A right angle has to be how many degrees? 90. 90. If it's not 90 degrees, is it a right angle? No. No, it's something else. What if it's smaller than a 90 degree angle? It's a wrong angle. It's a wrong angle. That's funny. It's a, no, it's a cute angle. Yes, it's an acute angle if it's smaller than 90 degrees. What if it's one? obtuse? So you guys got this. If you guys know things like this, though it's called a proof, you know that those are, they have to be true. Otherwise, math breaks. They have to be true. Otherwise, math breaks. And so it's a proof. You can always hold on to it. Right? They're the explanation of how shapes work. Right? So they're the most important part. Sometimes the hardest to, to do the math, to figure out the formula and get it right. But once you have it, you can latch on to it. And then geometry, at least that part of it, won't be any more difficult than it has to be. But they never fail you. Tonight we're going to look at proofs, not geometric ones. I know, right? So some of you math people, I'm sorry. We're going to be looking at proofs of Christ as... What's the theme of Matthew? Christ as... That's John, son of God. Matthew is the theme of Jesus is the king. Right. So that's what we are proving. And tonight, Matthew is going to continue chapter 2. You already saw one when you did verses 1 through 12, right? One of the proofs that Jesus is king. What was that one? Oh, my goodness. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. If he's born in Bethlehem, that was one of the proofs. The king of kings would be born in Bethlehem. Well, tonight we're going to continue that angle, and we're going to keep going. I didn't mean to put the angle part in there, but we are. Let's read our text, Matthew 2, 13 to 23. So, if you can make your way there, please. It says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up took the child and his mother while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, key word, what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, 
key word, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to, key word, fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's our text we're going to go through there. We will see three sets of instructions from God via angels, and we'll see three sets of human reactions. So if you're looking for your notes, three sets of instructions and a reaction. The theme of our text, the one key thought that I want you guys to take away is Jesus is irrefutably king. So we must know and obey him, just like Joseph did. He's irrefutably king. So we must know and obey him, just like his father Joseph did. So we're going to take verses 13 to 15 as a section, and that is the first part, the first set of instructions, instructions and obedience, part one. So if you're wondering, is this going to be an obedience, disobedience? I just gave it to you. They obey. Okay, so, so look at the, look verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Okay, so what's happening? It says, now when they had gone, who's the they? Jesus. That's always, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they leave. But if we go back to verse 12 in your Bibles, someone else just left. Yes. The Magi. The Magi, yes. But, uh, so the Magi just left. And you'll find that actually everybody leaves at the same time. The Magi just left. All right, so they had come. Right? And do you guys remember who the Magi were? It's not we three kings of Orientar. Yeah. Yes. They were wise men. And what was their purpose on earth? Yes. They were archaeologists. Not archaeologists. They studied the sky. Yes, they studied the stars, right? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate going on. Were they believers? Were they not believers? We don't know. They were just three wise men, but their purpose on earth, they were kingmakers. They were from Persia or from Babylon. There's debates on either side. They were from east of Israel. And they were kingmakers in a worldly sense. Whoever they came to in their culture back then said, hey, this is the rightful king of this area. That's what they did. They came to Jerusalem. They saw Herod and said, where is the king going to be born? Where is he? We're looking for him. We saw his star. Where is he? And they get directed by the scholars. That, oh, that's going to be from Micah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then they go and they see him. So it says when they had gone, they were warned in a dream to leave. And so they did. They're Persian kingmakers recognizing Jesus as the true king. Again, irrefutably king. So when they were warned in a dream by God, they went back a different way, right? They didn't go back through Jerusalem. They headed out a different way. And it starts this phrase, now, when they had gone. It's this idea of sudden. It's this idea of quick. And when we look at verses 13 to 15, we're going to see that the Magi leave. And then we're going to see that Joseph and Mary leave right after that. Right. So they, the timeline moves fast. This was, I, I, I was asking myself the question, how, how quick do these things all happen? How old is Jesus when this takes place? Right? So Jesus is born in somewhere in 4 BC. Okay. And so then if you, look, if you go back and you look at Matthew, you go back and look at Luke, you're going to see that he's born, the shepherds come and worship. You're going to look at Luke chapter 2, and then after eight days had passed, this is verse 21 to 38, after eight days had passed, 
He's supposed to be circumcised, Old Testament law, right? And then he's supposed to be, after the time of purification, they're supposed to go up to Jerusalem and present him. That's what has, that's what's supposed to happen. So they did. And he goes in there. So he's somewhere between, you know, 30, 38 days old, about a month old when they go up there. And I'm going to read a little bit out of Luke 2, just so you guys get a sense of how we should be thinking about Jesus as king. Um, it says, and when the days of their purification, this is verse 22 of Luke 2. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male, male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. And so it follows them. They get up there, and the first person they meet and see is a gentleman named Simeon. And so I'm going to jump to his part. He says, now, Lord, he's been, the Lord talked, the Lord, Lord uh, instructed him that you're not going to die. You're not going to go, you're not going to die until you see the Christ. And he says, now, Lord, you're releasing your bond servant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then he also meets another character, Anna the prophetess, verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow of the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up, began giving thanks to God, continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So I take you there because I want you to see Christ is king. He's a month old, but prophecy has been foretelling. He's going to come. He's going to be here. Joseph and Mary were given instruction from angels, each in their own way, Matthew and Luke, chapters 1. And you can see that they, they, were, they were told, this is who Christ is. He's the king. They take him to, be, to follow the law. He's going to be presented uh, as a firstborn. And Simeon calls him king. And Anna knows that he's the king. How do you view Jesus is a really important question that you should wrestle with. How do you view him? Is he king? Or is he someone you know about and you've learned about in youth and Sunday school. He's king. He's the king of kings. And what should change in our lives if we actually truly view him as king? We don't have a monarch in our country, right? We don't. Some countries do. Um, not many left. But if you have a king, they're an ultimate authority. So I wanted to take that side road into there so you can see a sense. Jesus is about a month old when all this takes place, maybe two or three at the oldest. So let's just jump back into our text now. We get to this message that Joseph receives, and it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This is not Joseph's first encounter with dreams, nor Mary's, right? An angel's appearing to them. And um, they, in Luke 1 and in Matthew 1, they both received instruction. As an example, Matthew 1, verse 20 says, But when he had considered this, Joseph, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Peter in Joppa in Acts chapter 10, right? Remember the sheet comes down from heaven in the same exact saying, verses 9 to 16. He had the same experience. Acts 10, chapter 10, it says, But he came, became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up. 
an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. And he continues on what God's message to him was there. But the idea of this, this dream, it's not a dream like we have today that you wake up and it's kind of fuzzy, like, oh, that was amazing. You either remember it or you don't. I never remember. I just don't. But um, it's not like that. This was a state of conscious mind that God puts them into so the angel of the Lord could appear to them and give them instruction. Does that still happen today? Before you answer any way, I'll tell you the answer. No, it does not. You go, why, Drew? Why doesn't it happen today? And you should turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Go ahead, turn to Hebrews. You all know where it is because Alejandro makes you practice, which is good. You all know where it is. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, and we will see why does that not happen anymore today. God instructs us today a different way than he was then. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, he says, God... The writer of Hebrews says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us, how? In his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So Jesus did a couple things in his ministry about what we have in scripture. When he pointed backwards toward the Old Testament, what did he say about it? How much of it should just go away? None. I got a zero. None of it, right? Not even the smallest stroke. You remember that phrase? Not even the smallest jot or tittle should go away, right? It is there. It's, it's right. It's good. It's God's word. Okay. He pointed forward looking at the New Testament. What did Jesus do to get the New Testament written? He picked someone. I don't know, like 12 of them. He picked the apostles, disciples. He picked the 12 apostles. Yeah, he did. And who wrote the New Testament? The apostles wrote the New Testament. Yeah, he picked that too. Right? You would say, well, Drew, Paul wrote a lot of it, which he did. Who picked Paul? God did, but specifically, who appeared to him on the road to Damascus? Jesus did. Always a good answer in any lesson. Jesus did, right? It usually is in the right direction. But yeah, in that case, he did. So he's, and today he's spoken to us through his son, which means for us, the word of God. That is where we hear from God. Nowhere else. I'll give you a couple other references to make sure that lands. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, this is what Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, seeing that his, God's, divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We have everything that we need. And in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, he continues, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, it says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter is saying it's men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote and spoke from God. We have God's word. This is how we know him. This is how we know his instruction. It's not from anywhere else, right? That's why Paul, when he went to Berea, was so impressed by the Bereans. When I, look, I hear you, Paul. We're going to look in the scriptures and see if what you're saying is right. Right? That's why I said be a good Berean, because they actually tested it. They went to the Word of God and tested it. Um, so you have to ask yourself, Christ is king. How well are you going about knowing him as king and knowing his instructions? 
which means, are you looking at God's word that way? This is how I should live. This is how my king says who he is, who his character is. What's he like? What's he like? What is he not like? How does he go about loving people? What does he say is praiseworthy? What should I run after? What should I think about? How should I think? It's in God's word. If you want to know that, you have to go there. That's where his instructions are. So he gave us that. So I want to make sure it's really clear about the dream spark. That was for them. For us, it's in God's word. But the angel did give them a message. So if we go back into our text, it says, what did this angel say? It says, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child and destroy him. This get up is an emphatic statement. Get up, like, go now. And then when, right after that, it says, take the child and his mother. Note the order. Who is listed first? Child and his mother. Mary and Jesus. Mary and Jesus, but who's listed first? Child and his mother is what it says. Jesus, yes. Nice, yes. The child is so both mentioned, but the child is mentioned first. Why? Because he's the king. They knew that. He's the king. Matthew knew that. You list the king first, right? Um, so it's all on purpose. Jesus is the king. Uh, we, we, um, we didn't look at this earlier. This is the, the uh, Luke passage where his parents were told about him. It says Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. It says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That means a king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. He's the king. That's why he goes first. Make no doubt, Joseph and Mary knew this very well. And so um, they were like, well, what's going on? He says, flee. He says, leave. That word flee is the same word that we get fugitive from now in the Greek. So when you think of someone a fugitive, they're running. They're go. You don't say like, hey, let's pack. What do you want to bring? What about the yeah? Let's go. Leave. Now they weren't in a um, manger anymore. If you go back to the first few, the last couple verses, eleven and twelve, you'll see that the magi found them in a house. So they moved from manger to house in Bethlehem at some point in time, and so they were starting to make a life. But the angel says, "Flee." And we don't know the details, uh, but we can surmise a couple of things. History tells us. They, they obviously go to Egypt. We don't know where. A likely place is Alexandria. History tells us that because Alex the, Alexander the Great founds Alexandria. This is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period. I think that's how you say it. It's hard. right? Between the two testaments, Alexander the Great came to the region and conquered everything. He beat out the Medo and the Persians, and the Romans haven't come in and conquered him yet. So that's where we are. And for no other reason than God's providence, because it doesn't make any sense, he sets up Alexandria as a city where it's safe for Jews to go. He literally says it's okay for Jews to be there. So because of that, a lot of them were migrating there. And it's estimated now there are about a million Jews that were there in the time when Joseph and Mary were fleeing. So they probably went there. And I share all that with you because you see God's providence working all these things out. We'll figure out why did he have to go to Egypt in just a second. But all of these details, fleeing in the middle of the night, just leaving are worked out. It could have been a month, two months long to get there. It's a long, long journey on camel or donkey or horse or foot. They're carrying a baby. You don't travel super fast that way. So it could have been a long time, but they made it and God provided for them. And the angel says, remain there until I tell you. We, again, we don't know these details. You have a two to three month old son. You go to Egypt. It takes you maybe a month to get there. Maybe. And uh, he's the king of kings. He's your Messiah. You know this. You want to protect him. You feel responsible. You know? But something's causing all of this. Why would Joseph just uproot his family and move them? 
You go back to the text. Who's trying to destroy the Christ child? King Herod. King Herod. Yes, Herod is trying to do it because it says, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. God knows everything. There's nothing that surprised him. Um, a verse that I've loved that helps me a lot in my daily life is Proverbs 15, verse 3. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing both the evil and the good. Herod's intentions to kill the Christ child did not surprise God at all. That, that's why the angel is telling him to flee. God knows everything. And it's not the first time that Joseph and Mary have been told that some kind of harm is going to possibly befall them. When we, first, when we read that long passage out of Luke, when Jesus was presented as a baby, and they met Simeon. Remember, Simeon said that to Mary, he said, the sword's going to pierce your own soul. Like, it's good, there's going to be conflict over this child. So they weren't, they, this was not a surprise to them either. They may have thought that maybe that'll happen later when he's, you know, like an adult, when he would be the normal age to maybe be the king. Not, hey, he's a couple months old. But, uh, but they still, they trusted the Lord. Just think about their life. He's born in a manger. The shepherds come and say, we were instructed to come worship your son. He's the king. The angels told them he's the king. He's the Messiah long awaited for. The magi come and confirm he's the king. And now Herod's saying, I want to kill your son. That's the whipsaw of where you are emotionally. Wow, what an honor. And then someone's trying to kill us. I, we don't think like that. If you put yourself in their shoes, like how would you respond? What would you do? How would you, would you say, oh, this is crazy. No, 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 we're, we're not going to leave. We just made a home. We just, we just got started. We have friends now. I have a job again, Joseph says. We have a house. We were in this manger thing. Yeah. How would you respond? What would you be thinking? What would you do? Verse 14 tells us what Joseph did. And this is where the obedience to God's instruction part comes in. It says, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. It was immediate. It was still nighttime. The Magi had just left the night before or that night. It could be the same. It says, they were, while it was still night, they got up and moved. You got to ask yourself. You don't have to. I'm going to make you ask yourself. Is that what your obedience looks like? I tell my children all the time, Ephesians 6, 1. Obey your children. Obey your parents. And I don't tell them that. Obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. I don't say the children part. My three-year-old, almost, he looks at me. And if I don't finish it, he goes, is this is right? He finishes it for me. He's great. Lincoln's terrific. Um, but yeah, that, that's, the idea is that you would obey, right? That's the idea. Joseph obeyed. Yes, there was threat of harm towards his son, but he still obeyed. That we are in the same pocket, we're in the same boat. Do we obey just like Joseph did, no matter what the circumstances are? And in verse 15, as we continue, he says, He remained there until the death of Herod, which is about, we know this by history, is in uh, March or April of 5 B.C., um, and uh, so this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So they stay there, and uh, they remain there, and then Herod dies, and an angel is going to come back and he's gonna say, hey, you can return now. And all this was done, all of it, all of these actions orchestrated by God providentially so that the prophet speaking out of Egypt, I called my son, would be fulfilled. Amazing. God always provides this fulfillment is uh, the second of four. You guys saw the first one last time. He was born in Bethlehem, right? Fulfilled Micah, right? Um, this prophecy is coming out of 
uh, coming out of Hosea, when it says, when Israel, I was a youth and I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so these types of fulfillments are what they call types. When Hosea wrote, out of Egypt I called my son, he's looking backwards in history at when Israel, the country, the people, left Egypt for the first time in the Exodus. Whether or not Hosea knew that it's also going to be more fully fulfilled when Matthew looks back, I don't know. All Scripture tells us is that these writers of the Old Testament were digging and looking for what the outcome of all of these things that God was showing them would be. I don't know if Hosea knew that. But we read it, and we can know that God is working this out. We have to recognize a couple of things. Matthew, is he inspired by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Thank you. Yes. All, uh, so you guys know this one. We've been memorizing it for small groups. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. How much of Scripture is inspired by God? All. There it is. That was, yes, much more strong. Yes, all Scripture is inspired by God, right? And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness. Yes. So Matthew, looking back, says this was a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy, a more full fulfillment. A couple of ideas that go along with that. It's referring to Israel coming out of Egypt. This is, like I said, a type. Um, the commentators like to say it's a nonverbal prediction, but really what's happening is Matthew's inspired by the Holy Spirit to quote that Old Testament prophecy and say it's been fulfilled. And when you string all of these prophecies together, that we'll see one, he's born in Bethlehem. A second one, he's called out of Egypt. Then we just get this picture of only one person could possibly, by the odds of anything, be, meet this, right? Um, where, just give me some cities. Where are we all born? Uh, yes. Tennessee. Tennessee. That's a state. <laughs> Seattle. Seattle. That's a city in this state of Washington. Yes. Uh, LA. Big place. Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Yeah. Anybody from Oklahoma? No. I'm alone. Okay. You live there. All right. That's terrific. Now? Where? Euless? You're the closest so far, but everybody's like, I'm from everywhere. Dallas. Dallas. There we go. Okay, we're now okay. Now you're like, no, no, I was closer. Okay, we'll leave the birth thing alone. But there's one city that relates to your birth, right? Just one. I was born there. I was born in Union, Oklahoma. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. There's that's just one city. Jesus has four places that he's from. I was born in Bethlehem. Out of Egypt, I called my son, and we'll see the other two tonight. There's only one person on earth that can say all of these things happened to me geographically right when I was a a baby. And it's Jesus. We'll see it. So this is our first fulfillment that we see, right? And even in a sense, Jesus was in Israel by his parents and his grandparents and grandparents were there and they left. So in a sense, you can say by gene genealogy, he was a part of it. But really what it's pointing to is that prophecy in Hosea 11 chapter 1 is more fully fulfilled because God orchestrated it to where he had to flee to Egypt when he was two to three months old and come back. God's providence is always working to accomplish his will. And we get to see it in these Old Testament prophecies. So we've seen Joseph and his mother, no, Joseph and his wife, Mary, and their child, Jesus, the king, flee and be told to stay there in Egypt until an angel returns to them and comes and says, it's time to go back. But right now, we're going to see our set, second set of instructions. And this time, disobedience as opposed to obedience. This is verses 16 to 18. This is the interlude of what's happening between 
the, uh, the two passages about Joseph and his family. It says, Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and, gr- and great mourning, Rachel weeping for their children, for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. King Herod, who the Magi had come to and said, hey, where is this Christ child going to be born? Do you remember what he asked the Magi to do once they found him? Yes. Yeah, hey, when you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is so that I can worship him. Okay, we know by text that was not his purpose. That was a lie. He's the king, and he hears about this Christ child who's supposed to be the king, and he fears for his throne. He fears for his throne. So if want, even from Herod's perspective, Jesus, bless you, is king. So Herod saw that he was tricked from his perspective. That word tricked is tricked or mocked, but the Magi were obeying the Lord. So don't think poorly about the Magi or think that they, they did the wrong thing. God warned them to return a different way. Herod saw it as being tricked because they didn't obey him to give away uh, the Christ child's location. And his reaction is not one of obedience. If your reaction is enraged, you know you're in the wrong spot. You've handled that poorly, okay, is what's happened. But let's look at what Herod does. He says he's enraged. That word is a violent rage. It's, it's not, it wasn't abnormal for him necessarily. He's a violent guy. He killed multiple of his own sons to protect the throne the way he wanted. Pardon? Yeah. Hey, close. Close. And um, he, he's just, he's a terrible guy. Um, but every sinner is, right? So, but he is a horrible man. He wasn't, he was the king, but he wasn't the king by right. He wasn't a Jew. He was from Edom, right? So he was one of Esau's descendants. And just to give you an idea of how terrible he is, he saw that he was about to die. He was sick the last few years of his life, and he knew it was coming. So he called all the Jewish leaders, he says called, forced all the Jewish leaders, and he put them in Jericho for one purpose. So that on the day of his death, he'd given commands that his soldiers would then kill every leader in Israel. So that at least there'd be mourning on the day of his death, even if it wasn't for him. That's Herod. That's Herod. God, in his kindness, did not allow that plan to be carried out. If you're wondering how does that story resolve itself, the people that picked up authority after Herod dies do not carry out that plan. They felt it would be too much of a, um, a, a violent act, and the people would revolt, and they probably would write. But he feels tricked and mocked that the Magi didn't respond, right? And so he's going to take it out. He's going to try to solve it for himself. Now, remember, Joseph and Mary and the child are gone. Hang, Herod's super angry. And so what does he decide to do? He says, I'm going to handle this my own way. Think about the timeline, right? They, Magi come to Herod. Bethlehem's just about five miles away from Jerusalem. So maybe a day's journey, maybe. Because the Magi weren't just three individual guys traveling on donkeys. There was probably a whole entourage with them. If their job was political kingmaker, they had soldiers and guards. and everybody. Okay, it takes them a while to move. So maybe a day goes by. They meet Jesus. They give him his gifts. They're warned by God in a dream that said, hey, don't go back for Jerusalem, go a different way. And they leave that night. So maybe we're one or two days since they saw Herod. And Herod knows that, man, they should have come back by now. Like I told them to come back through and tell me. So maybe we're three or four days. 
And so Herod knows that he's been tricked. And so what does he do? He commands his soldiers, take every two-year-old male and younger. Now, how old was Jesus? Two to three months old, right? Why do you think Herod went to two years old? It's kind of extreme. To make sure he didn't miss. But Herod knew the whole timeline. I just walked you through it. We're days into this thing. He was just born, right? That's Herod trying to thwart God. Is it possible? No. It is not possible to thwart God and his will. But uh, Herod knew that whole timeline. He's still determined, two years old and younger, and uh, to make sure he didn't miss anyone. Yeah, he's, he's, that, he's that terrible of a character. It brings up a good question, though, that we should ask ourselves. Which is, why does God allow for terrible things to happen? And as I was studying, there's a commentator that I like the way he writes. His name is Hendrickson. And uh, he and a guy named Kistemacher, they both do the New Testament commentary. He said, it's, it's a quote from him that helped me. He says, it's not for us to question God. That's always the wrong perspective. If you're going, why God? You're coming from a selfish egotistical place because I don't agree with what you did is essentially the rest of the statement, right? I don't know if you guys see that, but that's what's happening. And he says, it's not for us to question God, but to trust in his good plan to accomplish his good purposes. And that helped me a lot when it came to that. It's not the worst thing that's ever happened to the Jewish people either. If you're wondering about how many they suspect that maybe 10 to 20 male children were killed because of that, Bethlehem's a small community in the vicinity around it. There's not much there. So, um, but that doesn't help. Uh, the number, those male boys were still, still killed. But he did it for a purpose. And what was that purpose? If you keep reading, we will see in verse 18, in 17 18, it says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And this is coming from Jeremiah 31. And it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Again, Christ is attached to a prophecy being fulfilled right near his birth. Rama, the word means height, but it also referred to a town that's seven miles north of Jerusalem. We're all around Jerusalem, right? The key thing about that word Rama and why that place is, uh, is Jerusalem, do you guys know where it's located geographically and what it's like around there? Some yes, some no. It's on a hill. So it's, that's why everybody goes up to Jerusalem. It's on mountains. Not Rocky Mountains mountains, but mountains in the area. You have to go up to it. So Rama, seven miles north there, is in the plains. It's important. Because this is the place where, if you can, you can find this in the Old Testament, you can, where Israel, the borderline between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah met. Rama was right on the border. Hard place to be because whenever Israel and Judah fought each other, it always happened there. Um, but when you see this prophecy in Jeremiah saying, a verse was heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, it's referring to the fact that every time there's a deportation by Assyria, when the northern kingdom went, Israel, and there's a deportation by Babylon, and Judah went, right, into captivity, and it started from Ramah, because those are the logical planes that they would have taken the people away from both of those countries and then shipped them out from, which is why Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel, because if you go, so I know it's a ton of history, right? Did you expect a history lesson? Well, you should see how God orchestrates everything together, right? Rachel is Joseph, not Joseph and Mary, but way back, Joseph, no, excuse me is, uh, thank you, Jacob's wife, he has Joseph. Yeah. And um, so Jacob's wife, and she has children that basically represent the two tribes. Joseph and then his kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, they represent the northern kingdom. Benjamin, her other son, represents Judah, because it was just Judah and Benjamin in the, in the southern kingdom. 
So you see this prophecy is referring to Rachel weeping for her children, the whole nation being taken away. But in this fulfillment of this prophecy, Rachel's weeping because these children right near Ramah were murdered by Herod, and he's fulfilling it, that it's happening again. Both times, this applies to children. Both times, this is applying to uh, babies being taken away and killed that were no more. And Matthew is again proving that Jesus is Messiah by fulfilling this prophecy that happened just right near Bethlehem. So this brings up a couple application points um, that hit me like a ton of bricks, which was Herod had a plan. He wanted his life to go a certain way. God had a different plan, right? Um, and had a, and had, uh, did not allow him to accomplish his will. So we, how do we react to when our will is superseded by God's will? When our will is, hey, I'd rather go do this, that, or the other thing, but God's will is obviously different for your life. You're going in a different direction. How do you react? Herod, enraged, violent, bitter, hateful. Joseph and Mary, what was their reaction to their life being uprooted and being sent into Egypt? Immediate obedience. How do we react when what we had as plans for our lives are not what God's taking us through? You should react like Joseph. You should react in a way that's immediately obedient. So that brings us to our third set of instructions and obedience. So if you're wondering, man, do they obey again? Yes, they do. They do because we're talking about Joseph. We're talking about Mary. And they do. So our third set of instructions comes in verses 19 to 23. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill the word, what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Herod dies. We know that Herod dies shortly after Jesus was born. And that all these actions are, again, are happening relatively quickly. Herod's death, as quoted by Josephus in his antiquities writing, says, he died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied, maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. Um, he died a terrible death. It was horrible. Um, and even he's a horrible man. So if that gives you some kind of peace, maybe. But um, that was just shocking. So, uh, but Herod had a will that Rome honored. He had two sons that he hadn't killed yet, and he split his territory. And the southern kingdom, uh, Judah area, was ruled by, ruled by a gentleman named Archelaus, and the northern Israel and territories by Antipater. And Herod's dead, and now Archelaus is reigning. And the angel appears to them and says, come back, it's time to go. He says, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to Israel. For those, more than Herod, wanted the Christ child dead. We're not clued into who they are. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And so we see the order again, take the child and his mother. Christ is king, he goes first. And we see Joseph, more importantly, obey immediately. Just They, just, they probably were there for three, four, five months maybe. They just started life again. And it's, nope, come back. And again, we, no, no, no uh, complaining, no waiting. They immediately come back. And they're heading to, most likely, where they were from. Where did they leave from? Bethlehem. They're probably going back there. 
The angel didn't say where to go in Israel, just to go back to Israel. They're probably going back to Bethlehem. They probably had friends there. They had a house there. They had work there. And it really made sense. But Joseph says, I was afraid to go there. Because Archelaus, who's just as wicked as his dad, Herod, to prove it, he only ruled there nine years. And he was so bad that all of the country and regions around him complained to Rome. And so Rome deposed him and set up governors, of which one of them was Pontius Pilate. Um, but he was so, that's how terrible he was. So Joseph was afraid. We all have emotional reactions to things. Joseph did too. He's human. But what did he do about it? It's easy to see that Joseph and Mary consulted the Lord. They were trying to figure out what to do that would please God. And God tells them in a dream, go to Galilee. Back to you were before the birth of Jesus. And this is important. It says, through the prophets. Um, he says that in verse... Uh, um, I'm not, I don't have the verse number. He says yeah, through the prophets, uh, this is going to go back and go back to Nazareth. He's going to be called a Nazarene. And we don't have a record of an Old Testament prophet saying specifically that, but Matthew's inspired by the Holy Scripture, by the Holy Spirit, and he says it. So we have to believe that they did say that. So the question is, well, what, what did the prophets really say? Well, this is what we know from Scripture. He is, the, he is from there. He's called that 13 times in the New Testament, 14 times in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth, 13 times in the New Testament, Jesus the Nazarene. And in cultural context, through God's providence, people from Nazareth, a Nazarene, was talking about someone who was despised. Nazareth was a small town, small community. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Even one of his disciples had quoted that. It was, uh, for historical reasons, it was like that. So to be fair, some in context are places, some in context are despised and rejected. So either way, whatever the prophets said about that, where Matthew is quoting them, he's from there, and he's despised and rejected. Just a couple verses to prove that. Isaiah 49.7 says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful to the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He's the despised one in Isaiah 47, 49.7. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 3, he's also despised and forsaken of men. He's a Nazarene. It's not necessarily the, the place, although we know he was from there. It's really looking at he's despised and rejected by men. So now we have seen the third and the fourth fulfillment proving that Christ is king. So let me, let me go back and summarize this. The whole point is Christ's kingship. As you've studied Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, long list of names. What did the long list of names, the three sets of 14 genealogies, what did that tell you? If you remember. His dad's Joseph. Joseph is part of the family of? Abraham. Yes. And more specifically for kingship, David's. He was under David's line. And prophecy said he's going to be of David's line to be the king. And so we saw that. So he's king by genealogy. We see four prophecies fulfilled. Now you've seen all four between Ma in Matthew chapter 2. He is born in Bethlehem. He came out of Egypt. Rama is weeping again because of the children killed. And he is called a Nazarene. The Magi came. The political kingmakers of the day came. Not because they're studying God's scripture. They were astronomers. But because God brought them. Again, why? to prove that he's king from all senses. And you see Herod's desire about him. Herod, who was the current king, current kings who see threats to their throne, kill them. Herod tried to do that. 
He failed. You see Herod's desire to destroy him. The bottom line, y'all, is Christ is irrefutably king. He's, irre- there's someone's king. He's irrefutably king. Our job is to honor and obey him. So if we're going to honor and obey him, then there are three things I want you to write down as an application from tonight. As we see Christ is irrefutably king. One, you should worship Christ is king. As a believer, if that's not a part of our life, where we worship Christ as king, then we see him in the wrong light. He is the king of kings. Our citizenship, our identity should be found in him. Not, you, you may think of your identity as, I'm a teenager. You may think of your identity as, I'm part of the family of whoever. Those are, okay, yeah, you are. But as a believer, your identity is encompassed by Christ as king. So how well do you know your king? How deeply do you seek to know his character, his words? We talked about it's in the word of God, his commandments. The second thing I want you to take away, you should desire that his will is worked out in your life. All those words in order are important. His will is worked out in your life. Not my will is worked out in my life. Joseph and Mary desired to protect and love and care for their king of kings. They were making decisions, the best ones they could. Hey, we got a house in Bethlehem. But what happened? Go, flee, Egypt. Come back. No, not, not, not in Israel. Go to Galilee. Okay. Um, but they obeyed. And then the third thing I want you to walk away with is praise God that he works his will out in our lives for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So worship Christ as king. Desire his will to be worked out in your lives and praise him for how he works everything together for our good. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are king. Jesus, you are the king of kings. We so look forward to you coming back and reigning. We so look forward to you finishing. Uh, But Lord, at the same time, we thank you so much for your patience. Lord, your word tells us that you're looking over, you're overlooking these times of ignorance. Why? So that all men everywhere should repent. And Lord, we pray that tonight that you would um, call us to repentance. For the believers in the room, Lord, call us to repent, to be in your word, to be understanding your commandments, to be applying them to our lives. Lord, for any unbelievers in the room, work on their hearts, show them their sin, show them that they are an enemy of the King of Kings, and then show them the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Uh, Lord, uh, through Jesus, you say, by your grace and your mercy, his perfect life, his death on the cross, defeating sin and death, and his resurrection again the third day. We thank you so much, Lord. I pray that you be with us as we go. Help us to apply your word. Help us to treat you as our king and react appropriately. I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Drew. I love the point you make 